Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. But tonight, you are here to hear about this book. Um, it is called What I Would Tell Her, 28 Devoted Dads on Bringing Up, Holding On To, and Letting Go Of Their Daughters. Um, the editor of that collection is here with us tonight. That's uh, Andrea Nikki Richeson. Um, she's the editor of four widely praised anthologies about everything from the mother-daughter bond to one about women in their 30s, um, and then an upcoming one about first loves called Crush. Uh, but tonight she is here for the father-daughter anthology, What I Would Tell Her, and uh, one of the writers is also here tonight, Michael Kearns. She will introduce him, but I am now introducing um, Andrea Richardson. After the event, we'll do a quick Q&A, and then we'll set up the table and get some book signs. Um, if you like the event, a great way to show you like it is to buy a book. That helps us do more of these events. So um, thank you very much for coming, and I give you to Nikki Richardson. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for coming. It's so delightful to be in this gorgeous bookstore. I'm so excited to be joined by Michael Kearns. And I just want to thank right now the Michael Kearns Fan Club and the Kimberly Askew Fan Club. I think this is the Askew Fan Club's Go Kim. Um, last year for Mother's Day, I, I, as she, Amy mentioned, this was the book because I love her. So what I would tell her is the follow-up to that collection. It was a mother-daughter anthology. And for that... Um, for all of those readings, I sort of strategically placed Kleenex boxes throughout the audience because we were all, there was rarely a dry eye in the house by the end. Tonight may not be that different, I'm, I'm just warning you. But um, so I'd just like to share two essays from the collection. Michael will read his beautiful essay and then I would like to read one as well. Lastly, I just wanted to say what I would tell her is probably the most beautiful collection I've worked on. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of the work included. The essays are brilliant and vulnerable. And anyway, let's get to the good stuff. Um, um, and now it is my honor to introduce to you a true Renaissance man, Michael Kearns. He is an award-winning writer-performer who lives in L.A. with his daughter, Tia, who's here tonight. Hi, Tia. He is the author of six theater books, more than a dozen produced plays, numerous solo performance pieces, and his work is widely anthologized. As an actor, writer, director, producer, fundraiser, journalist, teacher, his work surrounding HIV AIDS spanning more than a quarter of a century is encyclopedic in its comprehensiveness, including work as an actor in film and television. Please join me in welcoming Michael Kearns. To a father growing old, nothing is dearer than a daughter. Is the daughter your love of your life? 
With the sound of water emanating from the splashing shower, I can barely decipher the lush language of Shakespeare, but listening, listening intently outside her bathroom door, I'm fairly certain it is Juliet in a lather about the nurse's untimeliness. It is the voice of Tia, my 14-year-old daughter, who is preparing to audition for admission to LOXA, the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. The words ricochet off the walls like swift Cupid's wings and land squarely in my heart. Three realities hit. One, she will graduate from high school. Two, leave home. And three, eventually find her Romeo. Love of acting, and by extension Shakespeare, is not the only joy that I share with Tia. We both love oxymorons, Marilyn Monroe, Peter Pan, Ireland, the Beatles, photography, politically incorrect days, Cat Stevens, blue cheeseburgers, cloud formations, breakfast at Tiffany's, Noel Coward, breakfast on Pluto, and Martin Luther King. The list of things we mutually don't like is led by social injustice, including racism and homophobia. I am a single white gay dad and Tia is my adopted black daughter. We were introduced when she was five months old, after having spent her first month in an incubator and the following four months in an unhealthy foster care situation. No abuse, but no real attention either. I was 44 when Tia entered the world, the same age as my father when I was born in Missouri. And while the circumstances of our births are differentiated by far more than the miles from Los Angeles to St. Louis, we dwell in limitless similarities, except for our blood. For all of Tia's life, I have routinely had my blood drawn because of the disease that I carry with me. The needle pricks and the sight of my blood moving from my vein into a test tube are a relentless reminder, like a nagging alarm clock you can't shut off, that I am not immortal. I will die. I will one day be separated from my daughter. It is your job as a parent to let go, I remember the director of Tia's preschool saying at one of the first parent gatherings I'd ever attended. I was likely the only gay one there that night. This was 1998, when gay dads were still an anomaly, and gay single HIV pause dads were virtually unheard of. Your responsibility is to prepare your children to live their life separate from you, she stressed. Huh? I spent how many hours, how many dollars, how many nerve endings over how many years completing this adoption and I'm told that it's my job to let go? Yeah, on a daily basis, with the utterance of each new word, with the manifestation of ideas, with the pulling away when all you want is the comfort of their touch. And that was all before she started kindergarten. Even back then, I began noticing how alike we were. You could put Tia in a room full of 100 other kids of the same age, I would tell people, watch their behavior for five minutes or so, and you'd be able to correctly identify my daughter, even if you only knew me slightly. Nature or nurture? That question has been consuming professionals for decades upon decades, perhaps even more compulsively now that adoption is out of the closet. 
Is your daughter the love of your life? She sits at the computer, delving into the Kearns family history. She identifies Lannis Kearns, my father's father, and his wife, Catherine. Even though her DNA would not attest to Kern's blood, my teenage daughter takes being a Kern's very seriously, and she is determined to identify her European roots. Blood be damned. She chooses Kern's as the heritage of her narrative and casts Lannis Kern's as her great-grandfather. Tia wasn't given much more than a first name by the mother who abandoned her in the hospital. The man who impregnated her mother is unknown. This was proven when, during the contentious adoption process, the family presented a slew of possible fathers as ploys to gain last-minute custody during the final coda of a nearly three-year-long three Grand Guignol-like opera. You are my family, she says. She reminds me of the many individuals, gay, straight, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, who have helped me raise her since she and I embarked on this journey together. They are from Ireland, she reports from a room where she sits at the computer. Both of Lannis's parents were born in Ireland. Tia and I had already confirmed our deep roots to Ireland when we boarded a Kearns bus while visiting Dublin. We also found more than one Kearns laid to rest in the luxuriant Glavison Cemetery. Her claiming possession of Kern's blood does not reflect lack of intelligence. Not a Kern's in name only, she has made a definitive decision to take ownership of our surname. Is there an inherent accompanying choice to deny her blood roots? Perhaps. Does it matter at 14 years old? I don't believe that Tia is denouncing her blackness. I do believe she's choosing to identify with the Kearns family rather than her blood family, something I didn't encourage or even suggest. But why would I or should I interfere? We all compulsively write and rewrite our history, adding and subtracting this and or that detail for multitudinous reasons, from getting a coveted job to keeping us from going totally insane. Is the daughter, is your daughter the love of your life? On the day of 9-11, I remember the pangs of uneasiness when I dropped Tia off at Foundation School Community, a progressive K-9 school in the San Fernando Valley. Already in first grade, she was fiercely independent, but I wasn't. And like most every parent on the planet that specific morning, I held my kid a little tighter before leaving her in the care of her teachers. Let go, an embedded voice in my head reminded me. Feeling useless as I walked away, I spotted a red cross building directly across the street from Foundations. Had I never noticed it before? I'll donate blood, I thought to myself. As I headed for the building marked with the bright signature red cross, it dawned on me, my blood is bad. I can't give blood. I am going to die of AIDS, I told myself. How soon? Let go, I said to myself. You must let go of her. Some part of me hoped that the 9-11 bloodshed would provide context for me to introduce the notion of loss, if not death. It didn't. So I waited until Tia was nine and then attempted to explain to her that my blood was different, a word we'd come to apply positively when describing many things about me and our family structure. While trying to avoid that other D word, disease, I read to her from a children's book created for the occasion. 
my dad has HIV. She seemed unfettered by this news, as if it was no more complicated than saying I had a stubbed toe. If you were looking for clues as to how she took the news on a subconscious level, she insisted on wearing my shirts, from t-shirts to dress shirts, washed or unwashed, to school. My amateur psych evaluation is that she found comfort in keeping me nearby throughout the day. In other words, not letting go. Instead of my apron strings, she was holding on to my shirt tails. We seemed to be in sync on the letting go dilemma. Unlike her daddy, who is a veteran, Tia has a fear of having her blood drawn. In fact, she's a bit phobic, and a scene inevitably ensues at the doctor's office whenever she has to undergo required blood tests that are a parent's responsibility, I remind her through clenched teeth. As the years melt one into another, I feel needed during these moments of upset and notice that in some odd way, it is often the role of blood that unwittingly unites us. I'm not suggesting that our life together is without peril. Are you kidding? There are the predictable parent-child dramas enacted on a daily basis in households worldwide and ours is no different. No more or no less special, no matter what the cultural and social distinctions than any parent-child configuration. The day that Tia is scheduled to find out whether or not she's accepted to LOXA, I am shooting a film on location in Northern California's wine country. I played the owner of a vineyard, a single widowed dad of a daughter who has just been accepted to college and is set to embark on her life away from home. Dying of cancer, he delivers a toast brimming with emotion at her going away celebration. Using wine as a metaphor for life, this dad is celebrating the life and accomplishments of his daughter, but he is also saying goodbye to her. I fail to pinpoint this parallel motif until Tia and I talk on the phone a few hours before I'm scheduled to shoot the scene. In anticipation of calling her, I check the messages on our home phone to see if there's news about whether or not her rendition of Juliet of the Juliet monologue got her into LOXA. When I find out that she has been accepted, I hurriedly dial her cell phone. She cries when I tell her the news, and that makes me cry, separated by so much space, but bound by miles of shared excitement. A few hours later, I am hitting my mark, portraying this dad whose daughter will be leaving him, or will he be leaving her? knowing that he must let go either way. It's been a long day of shooting and everyone is tired. The crew, the extras who are assembled in this critical party scene, and the principals. This is the only time in my long career that I have ever asked the director for a little time before beginning the scene. I have to summon the feelings that the character and I share and do it simply, elegantly, and authentically. When action is called, Feeling the feelings, but not indulging in them, becomes a tightrope act. Life and art meld, and honey, I deliver. <laughs> Is your daughter the love of your life? Asked by a man that I'm on a first date with, the question feels icky, too intimate, and a bit confrontational, yet unquestionably astute. 
The dinner has been romantic and he's sexy as hell, but I decide it's a trick question. And I initially veer to the defensive track. Even if the truth jeopardizes some free zone of the moment, I ultimately admit that it's true. Of the myriad friends and relatives and lovers, past and present, Tia is unequivocally the love of my life. He seems to understand and then admitted that he was envious. He doesn't stop there. Do you think her love has kept you alive? This is another frequently asked question of my life. Do I think that Tia has been key to my enduring survival against some tough health conditions? Yes and no. She is a daily exultation, a jolt of giddy endorphins. However, the art of parenting is physically and psychologically wearing. No parent I know is automatically immune to occasional irresistible acts of self-destruction. And I know many people who die in spite of the radiance of human connection. During the past 14 years, my HIV history has not been without blips. Some of them have materialized more severely internally than externally. What you see is not always a reflection of the indignities of my insides. When my body doesn't behave the way I'd like it to, I don't blame Tia's influences, so it's sometimes unwise to do the opposite. My health is not her responsibility. There are times when the body has a mind of its own and disconnects from what may otherwise be healing. Yet I do believe that the illumination of Tia's constant presence has opened me to life's miscellaneous mysteriousness, likely a prescription for longer life. Sitting across from me at the table in a neighborhood hangout, she is wearing a t-shirt with brown and white horizontal stripes. The pool of white surrounding her brilliant brown eyes appears to be uncannily coordinated with the top she's wearing. My daughter is ravishing, inside and out. Our teaming is the reason I believe in magic, in things unseen. Why? The moment I held her tiny body in my hands, she was my daughter. Fate? Perhaps. Our connection is deep and unbreakable. It may be bloodless, but there is something equally powerful coursing through our veins. I don't have to tell you what it is. When she was much younger, I used to tell her, a string goes from your heart to my heart so that we are always connected. Now, I think of it more as an artery pumping life into both of us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Why do I have to follow you? Oh, God. So this is an essay by Steve Allman, who was, I believe he was here the other night. He has a new book out called Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life. If you like his writing, you might check it out. It's called What Next, Papa? Okay. 
how do you do this? Just there. Okay. <coughs> Thank you. <clears throat> My daughter Josephine is at the bottom of the stairs calling out, Papa, Papa. My office is a converted attic, so it sounds like she's standing inside my ear. Or perhaps that's just fatherhood. She begins rattling the gate. The gate, if properly assembled and installed, would not rattle. But my wife and I are writers. We haven't properly assembled or installed a single thing in our home, ever. <laughs> that our bodies were able to assemble and install a child remains an astonishment. Josie continues to rattle. Papa needs to work, my wife calls out half-heartedly. Papa! Josie shrieks. I want Papa to come down! Papa! Papa! I now make the mistake I so frequently make. I appear at the top of the stairs. My thinking is that I can reason with Josie this time. I can impress upon her that Papa is working on a book. A boring book, okay, but a book nonetheless. And that I've reached that critical juncture where something potentially unboring finally happens, and I, so I need to concentrate. I need to bear down and enter my dark cave of revelation. And so I'm sorry, love, but no, Papa can't come downstairs right now and swing you by your toes while bellowing clearly racist samurai gibberish. I look down. Here is where my plan falls apart. Right at this point where I look down and see Josie's face, and there's really no use in my describing her face, nor the ease with which it crushes my puny will. If you're not the father of a daughter, words won't even get you close. And if you are the father of a daughter, I'll leave you to envision your own daughter's face. And God bless you for that, brother. You already know how this story ends. This, is, this all starts a long time ago. As a child, I lobby my parents for a younger sister whom I envision as a kind of daughter by proxy. We are a family of angry and insecure boys, and I'm certain a daughter will tame us. A single gummy smile and the wolf pack will fall to pieces and lick her rosy cheeks. My parents say, no way, Jose. When at 17 my girlfriend announces her possible pregnancy, I receive the news as fate. A daughter of my own, a little sooner than planned, sure, but isn't life crazy like that? I'm going to be a teenage father. I am going to be a teenage father like you'd see in a, some heartwarming TV movie with Robbie Benson. <laughs> Wounded and painfully noble and perfectly quaffed. I will take my baby girl to the mall and everyone will sigh as I feed her a bottle and burp her and rock her to sleep on my shoulder. Then I'll head off to Sears and shoplift for her some new clothes. <clears throat> but my girlfriend isn't pregnant. I spend the next decade in a blizzard of erotic irresponsibility, subconsciously designed to produce a daughter. It never happens. So I begin writing short stories filled with baby girls. The most inexcusable of them is written from the point of view of a doomed Russian farmer with four girls, all of whom worship their, yes, wounded and painfully noble father. He dies with one or perhaps all four in, in his arms. It is clear by this time that I know nothing about girls and even less about women. I remain convinced a daughter will arrive and make everything right in my soul. This conviction lasts another decade. Then rather suddenly, the moment is upon me, I am holding Josephine Almond and staring down into the stunned gray extravagance of her eyes. Her brow furrows and her cheeks flush and her exquisitely tiny mouth opens to release a howl that can only be described as Wagnerian. This goes on for five minutes. I think, wow. I think, I should probably do something. I think, this is going to be a little more complicated than I planned. 
kinder music class, teacher Pam is saying, okay, everybody, we're going to sing about Little Feather now. Is everybody ready to sing about Little Feather? This will help with our listening and motor skills. She starts singing about Little Feather, a boy who walks around the forest hearing various sounds such as the owl sound, hoot, hoot, and the squirrel sound, scurry, scurry, and finally walks into a bear cave, and rather than freaking out, he makes a bear sound, roar, roar. We're supposed to be sitting in a circle, but Josie makes a beeline for Pam and pulls away the Little Feather doll she's using for demonstration purposes and drags Little Feather around the room by his little legs. Then she starts bashing Little Feather's skull in with a mini xylophone. The other moms stare at her in horror. Then they look at me with that disingenuous, oh, isn't your little sociopath adorable look. <laughs> Roar, says Josie, I'm a bear. Little Feather makes no sound because Little Feather is dead. It's the eve of my first out of town trip. I'll be gone for three days. My wife and I have been mentioning this to Josie all week, trying to prepare her for an extended absence. Papa has to go away for work, we say, but then he'll come back. Right now we're getting in a little rough housing before I have to pack. I'm taking bites of her ribs, which I call Josie Burgers. She's laughing in her breathless, convulsive manner and pushing my head back, then squilling, Josie Burgers! So I'll dive in and take another bite. We all fall for our girls like this. We all worship them. We get to perfect the heroic version of ourselves that mates never grant us. Our love resides in a passionate physical connection that is not sexual, but grounded in the sensuality of childhood, that the smells and textures and taste. Suddenly, she grabs my cheeks with her hands. It's a weirdly dramatic gesture. She wants me to listen. She looks down as if to gather herself, and when she looks up again, her eyes are sad. Planets, Papa goes away, she says softly. Papa works. Josie is on day five of nap strike 2008. The flesh around her eyes is that red puffy look of impending meltdown. Do you want to read a story, I say? No, she says. Do you want Play-Doh? No. We could go downstairs. No. Or we could take a walk. No. How about if you have a timeout? No. Bambian, I think. Baby Ambien. Just strong enough to induce the sleep your baby deserves. <laughs> My wife came up with the name. All we need now is seed money, legal counsel, and a small bank in the Caymans to handle the fortune. It's the middle of the night and Josie is crying. I find her at the railing of her crib, wiping her nose. When I lift her out, she breaks into a grin and says, I want to get down. I want to see Mama. She squirms free and runs into our bedroom, punked again. But then I hear my wife let out a soft sound of distress. Honey, she calls out. Honey, please come here. I walk into her bedroom. The light shows that Josie's face is covered with a bright red substance. That's funny, I think. I don't remember putting any cherry syrup in her crib. My wife glances at me. She's trying not to panic, which immediately makes me panic. I briefly and sort of morbidly marvel at my own negligence. I can hear a state worker saying, so you didn't notice anything unusual about your daughter's face when you took her out of the crib? That's your testimony, Mr. Almond? My wife gets a wipe and cleans off Josie's face. There's no discernible wound. It must be a nosebleed, I say. We read about nosebleeds for the next half an hour while Josie bounces on the bed cheerfully. Injury is a minor villain in her production. Death doesn't even make the program. I coax Josie back into her crib, and then I lie awake for the next hour. It's over, I think. It was nothing. Don't be a dope. Stop worrying. We've just emerged from our nightly bath, and I've put Josie on her changing table for our dry-the-princess ritual. She flips 
flips over and I pinch her tush until she gets the hiccups and agrees to be diapered. I stand her up to put on her footy pajamas and she leaps into my arms. I gently apply Vaseline to her nose and make farting noises on her belly. Then we make a bottle and I read her two stories and we do hugsies and kissies and I tuck her into bed and rub her back until she sighs. She is so your little girlfriend, my wife says when I walk back into our room. Hell yes she is, I say, because What's the point in denying anything? I've said from the beginning that I'm delighted to have a child who eventually will want to sleep with me and kill her mother. <laughs> Consider the alternative. <laughs> Seriously, my wife says, it's like you're dating. We are dating, I say. What can I tell you? She's totally hot. She totally gets me. I, th I thrive on the erotic confusion. <laughs> At night, when she's supposed to be sleeping, Josie holds court over the creatures in her crib. She recites bits of books she's been read and repeats back everything she's learned during the day. I'm a little shy around Nils, just a little shy. Oh, isn't that cute? Hey, baby brother's looking at you. Josie can share. It's hard to share. She sings songs in her piping alto and tells rambling symbolic stories. There's a whole mind on display, a mind not yet sealed off from the rest of the world, from us, from me. I stand outside the door and listen in the dark. I wait for her to say my name. Josie has commandeered the giant cardboard box in which the Swedish eco-friendly diapers arrived. She is slowly destroying it from the inside out. I'm bored as usual and hoping to provoke this little scat routine we, we have. Joes, I say, are you a bukus manukus? No answer. Are you a tukus or maybe you're a papukus? Josie's head pops up and she casts me a withering glance. I don't want Papa to speak. I want Papa to go away. That's not very nice, I say. Josie's head sinks out of view. Go away, Papa, she whispers. Go into the kitchen. Fine, I say, fine. Papa's going to go away, but don't come running to Papa in two minutes when you want to be swung around, because Papa might not have time for that, okay? Josie says nothing. I can hear her punching the box's glued panels apart. Have you noticed that our daughter's kind of an asshole? I say to my wife later. <laughs> she's two, my wife observes. <laughs> Wait until she's 16. She's going to crush you like a bug. She is not, I say. Then I go into the bathroom and I use some private time to collect myself. <laughs> We're on the couch reading about Curious George and the bike he receives from the frankly creepy man in the yellow hat. We reach the part where George crashes the bike and mangles the front wheel and sits by the riverbank crying. Josie says, as she always does, with a genuine pity that shocks me each time, Oh, George is crying. She herself woke up this morning crying. When I went in to get her, I could feel immediately that she was feverish. Her diaper contained this sort of digestive horror that only a parent could face without gagging, all of which meant that she'd finally, inevitably, caught the stomach flu that I'd gotten and given my wife the week before, a flu we'd assumed was somehow related to the nasty cold we've been trading the week before that. Anyway, Joe's has been dosed with the medicine and cleaned up, and now we're trying to keep her hydrated and distracted. George is crying, she says again. Don't cry. She, she dabs at George's tears. When I was a baby, I used to cry, she announces, but now I'm a big girl. That's right, I say. You are a big girl. She pauses and lets out one of those sighs that I think arise in children from particular effort of thought. I'm starting to grow up, Papa, she says suddenly. And there's a moment, a strange, thrilling, terrifying moment, where the truth of this statement rears back and socks me in the heart. 
I'm sitting with my two-year-old daughter on my lap, staring at the blazing cuffs of her ears, feeling the weight of her breathing in her hair, and it's all so fleeting, the chance to love her with such uncomplicated fervor, such uncensored declaration. This reaction is sappy and absurd, as are most of my reactions to the world. But the gravity of her statement makes me suspect Josie has sniffed out the secret power of every childhood, which is that it ends little by little, that it's ending all the time, that each moment, wherever else it might contain, whatever else it might contain, in the way of joy and love and need brings her a little closer to escape. So all right, she started her getaway. Soon I'll be seeing her off to school, then summer camp, then I'll be greeting her prom date with a make-believe just kidding shotgun. Then she'll go off to college and major in something stupid, and I'll go bald and tell her she can move wherever she wants, the world is her oyster, if she doesn't mind dynamiting her old man's heart. We're living in a lucky age, in a lucky precinct, so I won't need to worry about her being sold into servitude or forced into a joyless marriage. The big mistakes are hers to make. And if I'm doing a number on her as a father, as I no doubt am via my indulgences, my impatience, the smallness of my self-regard, well, then she'll have to live with those. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing in this business so far as I can tell. We're all just nervous suitors, bowing before whichever princess is ours. We pledge our love in each little scene, then sweep them up and call it life. Josie won't remember one bit anyhow. The brain is forgiving like that. It's keep, it keeps stuffing itself full of fresh disasters and wonders. It pops her up each morning and tells her to call out for her father, who appears drowsy with adoration. What next, her brain tells her to say. What next, Papa? Thank you. So if you have any questions for Michael or me, I'm happy to answer them. And then we'd love to sign copies if, for Father's Day. So. Questions? Bueller? Yeah. Yes. So, uh, how was it to write such a personal thing with Tia and make it public? Did, did you discuss what you were going to write? Or you know, it's so, you know me for 354 years. <laughs> and uh, it was not easy today. It was not easy from the moment I woke up. <laughs> so, to write it is one thing, to uh, have it published is another thing. To do it with her sitting here <laughs> is quite another thing. So um, it, it felt good, and you know, but it it's complicated. It's complicated. I mean, I think it's. I don't want it to be complicated only complicated in a heavy way, but it's complicated in a heavy way. <laughs> and it's complicated in a not heavy way. You know, on the other hand, it, we go about our lives, you know, so, and here I am, you know, all these years later. It's interesting because Tia didn't read it, <clears throat> hasn't read it, probably won't read it, but she has, uh, you know, there's been this sort of discussion lately and so it's sort of in the air I guess with us so it's good you know it's I think it's the per today was the perfect day to read it with her here with people in the room it was the perfect day it, it it's we're we've caught up with the time it is to say it out loud and deal with it you know in a more direct way than we always have we've always dealt with it you know the it but uh, you know so it was it was difficult I was just thinking there was, um, my, my daughter, as you know, 
Tiana they've been in together. Yeah. Since, since kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about in mommy and me class. I mean, this was a class that she went to from the time she was born until they graduate when they're about to go to kindergarten or graduation. And at the graduation, I mean, I'm not a writer like you, but it's like you had to write a little thing that you wanted to say to them. And they all have on their little hats that we all help them make. And they're all sitting up there, and they're all four, and they're all just fidgeting. And, you know, the moms are taking turns just sort of going up and reading a couple of little lines, and then they get their little fake diploma. Well, I was just thinking I could barely make it through my two <laughs> Little. <laughs> I had to stop. And not for water break. But I could barely make it through. And I think I just said something like, you're growing up and you know you can do so many things for yourself. But you'll always be my little girl. And I can't even imagine graduation in three years. I can't even imagine that. So for you to stand up and be able to first write this, I can't even imagine how you how you decided what to even put in. There's just so much in our hearts for our daughters. And sons. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, just, yeah, very admirable. You Thank you. Through more Thank than two you. lines. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's also, but as people know about my work, it's also the way that I cope is to write it. It's my whole, I mean, and then to say it in public. I mean, so it's, it's a part of my coping mechanism is not only to write things, but to either perform them or say them out loud. This is a little bit different because this was so to the moment and so not in any way, you know. I think there's one thing in here that isn't absolute verisimilitude. We didn't get on the Kearns bus. <laughs> That's the only teensy white lie. And you know, a writer can do whatever they want in terms of details like that, but that's the only teensy white lie. We saw the Kearns bus, but I thought, it's better to get on the bus. <laughs> I tell my writers all the time, if it's a red dress and you want it to be a black one, make it a black dress. We throw out those things, but otherwise it's really absolutely every word. More questions. When you were writing it, was there anything that you kind of didn't know would come out like in the process of writing it that surprised you? Always. And then, you know, it's very odd. I mean, I really had a strange relationship to it all week and I didn't look at it and I finally, you know, I thought, I've got to look at this. I didn't want to look at it and then finally I looked at it yesterday and I was actually surprised by a lot of it yesterday. I mean, I, I, I was surprised about, you know, I, I just was surprised at, um, how much I love it and how much I'm glad it's written and how much I'm glad it's a, you know, a part of my history now and she can read it to her kids and they can read it to their kids. And I mean, that's the great thing about having, whether you do it in your own way with scrapbooks or whatever, you know, to have this record for, to be there. To, that's, it is. What I loved, I, I'm gonna ask a question. What I love, no, I'm not gonna ask. It's yeah. more of a comment though is just, the, the similarities between the two stories. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, how many threads there were. I mean, that guy and I are probably ostensibly very different, yet that relationship with that daughter was defined by so many of the same sort of sensual and, Absolutely. you know, which, which shows that, you know, a father is a father is a father, a mother is a mother is a mother, a parent is a parent is a parent. It doesn't matter what color you are or what. That's a great question. I, um, I of course, uh, you know, contacted the writers I admire for, you know, have for years, and then I have a network of writers from my previous anthologies. So a lot of them had recommended some people. My friend Kim recommended some some writers as well. And then Michael is a special story because I, I was, it was a Saturday at my house, and my daughter's driving me crazy, and I was just like, I can't need to work on this. And I, I did some googling, and I don't know if you Google father daughter what you think you'll find, but you don't want to look anyway. So I, I. So I don't know this you story. don't know, yeah. So I keep looking, and I saw this wonderful article in the LA Weekly or LA Times, LA Weekly. and I just started reading. I was like, "Who is Michael? Ker Michael Kearns needs to be in my book." You know, so I emailed him, and, and the, we just—it was a process, but yeah. But most of them, I you know, it's just email correspondence, and I you know follow up with them, and it's one of them is right here, right now. I see her in the back, Rebecca Wolf. So she's going to be in my crush anthology. So it's it's just you know that's if there, if there was no email, I wouldn't be doing this. Basically, that's how it works. So and I'm so I feel so you know blessed to be in the book and be a part of it and to to you know. Thank you. Thank it's you. really a cool book to be a part of. Yeah. And perfect for Father's Day. Yeah. Perfect for yeah. Father's Day. For any father, yeah. for grandfather. Yeah. For Birthdays, whatever. It's a great gift. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. Did you want to have? Thank yeah. You. Well, I was just going to say, um, uh, it's what's amazing, to, what's really interesting to me about the book. I haven't read the other pieces, but um, all the fathers I know, you know, in my family, and you know, we're not. I mean, my father never said anything like this. My father all. didn't either. Right. Yeah. That, that did. Yeah. Right. It, and um, and he died a couple of years ago. We actually had more closeness through he had dementia. And so I was kind of constantly trying to reach him and talk about things that, you know, about feelings mm -hmm. and things that happened. And uh, so we got closer than we had been in many years. And he actually expressed things to me, he said, you're a smart, you know, person, he wouldn't always know me, but I was his daughter. This was later in his life? Yeah. When he had to remind me of my daughter. Oh, wow. Well. just so well. great, mm -hmm. you know, and he had really not Never said those kinds of things to me. So it's very moving to hear these fathers that are able to I feel the same way. My father is a strong, silent type. I think he really loves me and wants to express his feelings, but doesn't really know how. And so it came as something as a shock when I was reading these essays because I felt like the mother-daughter bond, I really got that and I understood how complicated that bond was. So when I first started reading the essays, I was just overwhelmed by the orientation and just the passion and the, you know this outpouring of emotion for their daughters that I found really shocking so but it's, I think it's interesting what you're saying where well, I never would have thought of it but I don't think it, th this book wouldn't have existed in 19 maybe 40 right or even 50 or maybe even 60 mm -hmm. where a book about mothers writing about their daughters would have existed right so this openness of expression, writing it down, being more involved with your children, 
all that is definitely in the past since the boomers i think mm -hmm. you know my generation i mean my, Mm -hmm. They just, if they were loving and, and sweet men, they, I don't think they would have expressed it the way we're now allowed to express it, which is, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Where it was, it was just more acceptable for a mother to be lavish right. and, and overt about feelings and all those things, where now men are catching up to being allowed to be that way, which is great, which is a really, I think, I think that's why this book will be, be interesting to people because it's so emotional and so sensual and has all right. those things that one might have in the past labeled as female or right. you know what I mean? <clears throat> Absolutely. So that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Okay. Is there any more questions? Okay. Um, I'll just take a couple seconds to set up a little table here. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.